Second Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, this is what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Tim- Timothy, Silvanus is just Silas, spelled a different way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we're so thankful for uh, your word and thankful for time we get to spend in worship and, and exalting you for who you are. I pray now as we look at your scripture that you would be speaking to us and guiding and directing us, encouraging us with your truth and building us up in our faith that we would know you more. Lord, I pray that you would be speaking to us each, that we would give us open hearts and open minds, that you would speak clearly through me by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are starting a uh, a quick series on 2 Thessalonians. We just wrapped up 1 Thessalonians last week uh, and are jumping into this second letter sent to the Thessalonians. Um, So just a little bit of background. We've seen the map. I don't have the map for you uh, because I'm using my computer over here. Anyway, some issues here. Um, But but Paul is currently on a missionary journey uh, all over the Mediterranean region. And he's gone out from Antioch. This is his second missionary journey that we're in the midst of. Uh, and he's gone to, uh, through Galatia and Asia into Thessalonia or into Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, when he was in Thessalonica and Berea, he was uh, basically ushered out by the city officials. Uh, and he and his uh, crew, his companions, went on to Corinth uh, from where they sent these letters back to uh, the Thessalonians in Thessalonica. Uh, so... Just a bit of uh, context in terms of dates here for you. Uh, so AD 33 uh, was when Christ was uh, uh, crucified, uh, dead, and, and raised from the dead um, and ascended into heaven. So now 15 years later, Paul begins his missionary journey uh, and arrives in Thessalonica. So 15 years later, he's on this missionary journey and encounters the Thessalonians. And this is in 48 AD. Uh, 
in about 50 AD is when we think he writes his first letter back to the Thessalonians, which we just wrapped up. And now about a year later, six months to a year after that, he's writing them a second letter to emphasize some things that he spoke of earlier uh, and to point out some things that he felt needed some clarification uh, for them. So we have this, both the first and the second letter, we get to see Paul sort of pastoring through some truths that he wants them to cling on to and hold on to and understand uh, very clearly. And so uh, today we're looking at first, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, the whole chapter, uh, and we're going to do three weeks of this. Uh, the first week is focusing on an eternal reality that we have to grapple with. Uh, the second week is going to be talking about the coming of lawlessness in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And the third uh, week is going to be chapter 3, which is going to show us the value and importance of work. Um, and so uh, today we're looking at the eternal, eternal reality that has come in Jesus for us. Um, and we'll see a, a couple things, but one is, I want to highlight it in, uh, with verse 12, which is sort of the end, verses 11 and 12 of this chapter. Paul is praying for the Thessalonians, and I want to share this verse with you again, uh, share his prayer with you again. He says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may, be, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and that you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so what I want to point out throughout our time together today is that uh, the Christ is glorified in us and we are also glorified in him. Uh, I think this uh, can be split roughly. I think it's not uh, exactly, uh, but roughly into uh, how God is glorified, how Jesus is glorified in us in the present time, that is how Jesus and his impact on his life, his transformation of our lives impacts our present reality. Uh, and the us being glorified in him, I think represents mainly uh, us being glorified at his coming, that is being found in perfect connection and unity with and uh, eternal existence with God the Father through Jesus Christ, us being glorified in Christ. So, Christ being glorified in us is uh, what is happening in our present time, in our reality as we interact with one another, and we'll see some uh, application of that. And Christ, uh, us being glorified in Christ is, is seen in us uh, joining with him for eternity after whether we die uh, of physical causes or whether Christ comes back during our lifetime. At that point, we are glorified in Christ uh, and uh, he is glorified in us and we spend eternity with him. So I think there's a, a rough separation of, of that there. So that's gonna, what I'm going to use as my framework here. So first, Jesus glorified in us. How is Jesus glorified in us? Well, we see some evidence of it in how Paul describes the Thessalonians and how they are growing and uh, in, in their faith and understanding of Christ. We see four things about how the Thessalonians are growing in their faith, and they're found in uh, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul says it's uh, really a prayer of thanksgiving that he's giving uh, concerning the Thessalonians. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Okay, so that's the second thing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. 
It's a steadfast in persecution and in the afflictions you are enduring and the afflictions that you're enduring. So uh, we see here that uh, Paul is thanking God for the growth of the, the walk that the Thessalonians are, are having with Jesus in these few areas, in the, uh, that their faith is growing abundantly, that their love for each other is increasing, uh, and that their steadfastness in persecution and affliction is there, that is present. They have steadfastness in persecutions and in afflictions. So we see this as uh, a fruit of, a, uh, a showing out of, how Jesus is being glorified in the Thessalonians. So the first thing, again, that we see is that, uh, that there is a growing faith that is among the Thessalonians. Paul says, We thank God for you always because your faith is growing abundantly. Uh, so I have a quick question for you, and uh, you can yell out an answer if you want, or, or if you don't yell an answer, I'll, I'll just share my answer with you and and we won't have a conversation. But it'll be more fun if you, if you answer the question. So we'll see. Um, so this is the question for you. When does your faith grow? Does your, how, when does your faith grow? And when does your faith grow abundantly, as, as Paul is putting it here to the Thessalonians? When does your faith grow? Is there a, when you see a miracle. Okay, when you see a miracle. Okay, when you see God fulfilling something in a miracle, Okay. When else does your faith... Yeah, Ellen. In times of turmoil. In times of turmoil. Okay, yeah. Other thoughts? When, when does your faith grow? Times of turmoil, when you see a miracle. When you spend a lot of time with God, your faith will grow. Yeah. Other thoughts Are, from our visitors? Our visitors from another state, any thoughts on... on <laughs> All right, our visitors agree with what the, the natives have said. Um, so, um, yeah, so there's a number of things there, right? When a miracle happens, when you're experiencing a time of turmoil, when you're spending time with God, those are all areas where uh, we see uh, our faith growing abundantly. I think one area specifically that, that Paul is uh, hitting at here is what Ellen mentioned, that in times of turmoil, our faith grows. That is, in times when we are lacking, when we recognize our need for God, our faith has an opportunity in that moment to grow uh, beyond what it is. Um, I was thinking about this, and what came to mind uh, as I was thinking about this idea was uh, the idea of slack. Uh, you ever have, you know what, anyone, can anyone define slack? There's a couple of definitions, but. Yeah. Yep, right, slack. Yeah, there's some slack in the rope, right? And that slack is, how do you use that slack when you're water skiing? Well, it's got to straighten out for you to go forward. To go, go forward, yeah, okay. Yeah, so if the slack is there, you're sort of just like going to fall down into the water and, and drown. Ooh. All right, uh, so slack. Um, so this is the cute phrase I've got. This is my cute phrase for the, for the week. We'll just, I should have one every week, and this is the one. This is the cute phrase for the week. Um, here it is. Our faith grows in the lack, not in the slack. There you go. There you go. Cute, cute phrase for the week. Um, so the fact is, when, when you're 
in the lack, when there's no slack in your rope, you're getting pulled along, right? In the water skiing example, uh, the same thing in uh, rock climbing or whatever. If you don't have any slack in the rope, you're just hanging on by what rope you've got. And so any major drop is going to pull tension on that rope. Um, and, uh, and this is true. The example that's closer to my life, I haven't done a lot of water skiing or rappelling, uh, very little rappelling. And, uh, and so the example I was thinking of in my life was that we recently started uh, taking the, uh, the Dave Ramsey approach to budgeting. And, uh, and Dave Ramsey does a good job of making you get rid of the slack in your, in your financial budget. Uh, and there's some importance to that. His, his idea with this is that you ought to control, tell your money where it is supposed to go. That when you leave a little slack there, that you don't know what's happening with that money. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've had cash. I, I hardly ever carry cash because if cash is in my wallet, it finds a way into vendors' hands somehow. And I don't know how it is, but somehow after a couple weeks, I had $30 and then the $30 is gone. I have no idea where it went, how it was applied, what happened. And so when we have slack in our wallet or whatever, uh, you don't know where it's going. And so Dave Ramsey applies this principle to say, Okay, at the beginning of the month, if you know, you know, generally how much money you've been bringing in and how much money you are going to bring in generally, uh, tell your money where, where it's going to go and have a plan in place for if you end up with a windfall of some sort or extra cash, how you are going to use that. Be in control of how you're going to use that. And if you do that, you will see how God uh, provides for specific actual needs that you have instead of letting the slack out and just sort of letting it go wherever it may go. And so um, here, the, our faith growing abundantly, we see uh, we have more faith when we are in this lack and, and not operating out of this slack. When we're, uh, when we're uh, trusting God for all that we need and all that we have, rather than just sort of uh, living, it, living it loosely and uh, just letting it go where it, where it will go. And so uh, our faith grows in the lack, not in the slack. Our faith is moved forward when we recognize and trust God for every need that we have and actively are placing our trust in Him for that. Uh, when we're letting Him pull us and letting out the slack and letting Him pull us along. I love that water skiing example. Um, letting Him pull us uh, with that. And so, uh, so this was true for uh, the Thessalonians very clearly. Uh, they had to recognize plainly that, that God was in control of their situation. They didn't have a lot of slack in what they were doing. They had to live very upright lives because uh, the uh, city officials were, had a pin on them. They were looking at them and specifically targeting them because of uh, the, the gospel that they were preaching. And so as they're doing this, they have to live in an upright manner, a, uh, a, uh, a manner that is uh, worthy of the gospel they've been called to because they've got a magnifying glass on them. People are watching and trying to see what is going to happen with these people because they've essentially been said to claim that, that Christ is king rather than Caesar. And so they're sort of living at odds with uh, an authority that, that is in their, uh, in their midst. And so uh, they have to uh, live by faith in every moment they're, that they're facing. They're facing lots of persecution and trials. Um, and, and they have to uh, their, their faith is growing abundantly as a result of that, as they're faced with these difficult times. Uh, so Paul thanks God for the growing faith that the Thessalonians are experiencing in this time. The second, time, second thing he thanks, them for, uh, thanks God for is their increasing love to 
one another. Um, Paul says, I thank, give thanks to, uh, to God for you, brothers, uh, for the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Uh, so what do we see there? The, the fact is that um, love can be extended and it can be received. There's two pieces of love. Paul is seeing that the Thessalonians' love is growing. And so what does that mean? That means that love is being given and love is being received. The fact is that love can be given and not received. That's a reality. But what Paul is seeing here, and he sort of explains it plainly to us, is that love is both being given and received. He says this again, um, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So that is, there is a love, a specific love that the Thessalonians have that they are demonstrating to one another. They're showing it to each other. It's interacting between actual individuals, uh, not just in a general sense. They're actually loving one another, and this reciprocation is happening. So this increase is happening because they are loving one another um, in in their context. So our love can uh, only increase when we extend it to one another and receive it from each other. If, if we extend love and it's not received, then love has not increased, right? Love has not been recognized and that love that is being extended is stopped, right? It's cut off. And so um, this can be true in, in relationships between men and women very plainly. You know, sometimes a man is head over heels for a girl and tries to extend love out and is promptly denied for whatever reason. And then, you know, does love increase in that circumstance? No, it's cut off. The girl has to shower, wash her hair, whatever it is, and you never see her again. And so that's love increasing is a reciprocation of that emotion. So uh, if we're going to see our love increase, it has to be both extended and received. And it seems obvious and simple and whatever, but the truth is it's, it's very difficult sometimes for us to receive love that is being extended to us because of a lot of reasons, because of pride, because of, you know, all sorts of human emotion that gets in the way of just receiving the love that is being poured out for individuals. And so, uh, so, Paul, so Paul recognizes here uh, that first, he sees that their faith is growing. They are, they are being stretched and, and pushed and pressed, and, and their faith is growing in the midst of that, uh, but also that uh, their love for each other is growing and increasing. So Paul thanks God that he can see these things in their lives, and these things have been reported to him, that their faith is growing and their love for one another is also increasing. And so the call to us is that as we look at our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, is our faith increasing abundantly? Is it growing abundantly? And is our love for everyone, for one another increasing? Those are good questions for us to ask of our lives uh, as, we, as we try and determine if we're growing closer to the Lord. Well, let's ask yourself these questions. Is our faith growing abundantly? Is our love for one another increasing? Those are good questions for us to ask of ourselves. The last thing that Paul sees and thanks God for here is, uh, is that the Thessalonians are steadfast and have faith in all their persecutions 
and in the afflictions that they are enduring. As I mentioned earlier, the Thessalonians are uh, plainly being persecuted by the uh, Thessalonian uh, leaders. And uh, from this letter and our previous letter, we are seeing that those persecutions are continuing, that they haven't stopped. In fact, they probably have escalated, if anything. And so uh, Paul is recognizing the fact that uh, the Thessalonians are steadfast in persecution. It's easy for us to sort of forget about that. And uh, I have to be reminded of this all the time, that we have brothers and sisters across the world uh, in many nations that are physically persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. just have to sit with that for a moment sometimes and be reminded that as we profess faith in Jesus in America, we have very little persecution for that. As I say that I am a Christian and say that I follow Jesus, there's very little persecution for that. But in other countries, that persecution is very real and very tangible. Uh, and, and taking the name of Christ is... Uh, essentially uh, leaving your family, leaving your nation, going against the authorities of, that you are under uh, in, in that sense. And so it is taking a stand, giving your allegiance to something else. And so uh, Paul is saying he sees that their steadfastness in all persecution, that they're steadfast in all their persecutions and in the afflictions that they are enduring. So this is Jesus glorified in us. Jesus is being glorified in us as, as our love for each other increases, as our faith grows, and as, as uh, persecutions and afflictions comes, we, we endure them with hope in the gospel. So the second thing we see here is that uh, not only has uh, Jesus has glorified us when our faith in him grows, our love for one another increases, and when we trust in in him during our circumstances. So those are sort of realities that happen as we place our faith in Jesus for the present time. Uh, But the other reality that comes is an eternal sense. Jesus also makes a difference for us in an eternal sense. And Paul goes on in verses 5 to 10 to say this, and there's sort of two components happening all at once. There's uh, Jesus being, uh, us being glorified in Jesus, and then we also see that there are some who are excluded from the glory of Jesus. Paul goes on to say this in verses 5 to 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not, do not know God or those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the first thing I'll cover real briefly is, is this fact that we are quick to dwell on and, and is easy for us to dwell on is that Jesus is coming back. And that's a truth that we believe that Jesus is going to come back for his church. We studied it in First Thessalonians that he's going to come back and we'll be caught up with him in the air if we're alive when he comes back uh, or we'll join him from our slumber uh, in, and join those who are still alive when he comes back. There's all sorts of 
you know, charts and things that you could build to describe that interaction. Um, but the fact is it's good to, and it's, uh, we enjoy meditating on the fact that we will be with Jesus at some point. But Paul is really explicit here in saying that there is a, a, another side to that coin, that, that there are those who do not obey the Lord Jesus, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and do not know God, who will be afflicted with a, uh, uh, an eternal reality. Um, so you, uh, the fact is it's easy for us to be encouraged and strengthened by a movie like uh, Heaven is for Real, right? It's, you guys know that movie, Heaven is for Real, the, the boy that went to heaven and saw that thing. It's easy for us to be encouraged and strengthened by that. But the fact is, the flip side of that, the other truth is that hell is also for real. That Jesus isn't joking when he's talking about gnashing of teeth and weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's not, uh, Paul isn't joking when he's talking about eternal, the punishment of eternal destruction, as in verse 9. Those are difficult words for us to hear. And so when those words come up and we see those words in Scripture, we have to deal with them and uh, have to challenge ourselves with them as well. Questions come up like this. What is hell like? If hell really exists, what is it like? And Paul paints a, a pretty descriptive picture of it here. First, he says that it's going to be eternal destruction. So that's pretty heavy. Eternal destruction. Those are two words that you don't like to see joined, right? <laughs> uh, eternal presence of God, eternal heaven, you know, that's, I can, you know, I, I love those being joined. There's a lot of joy that wells up in me when I see eternal heaven, heaven, eternity in heaven with the Lord. Those are, those are great words to have joined, but these words to deal with eternal destruction. Okay, so hell is like existing forever in a state of destruction. The second thing that Paul describes it as is separation from God's presence. Entire separation from God's presence. And the third thing he says is uh, separation from the glory of God's might. From the glory of God's might. Um, there's a great theologian that has talked about hell and what it's going to be like and, and what, uh, what, how we should picture it. And, and uh, his name's Tim Keller. You guys have read some of Tim Keller. His perception of, uh, of hell is that it is, essentially we are receiving what we have already chosen. We're receiving what we are actively choosing in this life. Um, when I think about eternal destruction, you know, you can look around at our world and, and pretty simply uh, see that there is destruction going on. You know, men killing men, uh, us killing one another, hurting each other, uh, the, the world sort of deteriorating and, and uh, things not going in the right direction, asteroids, you know, potentially hitting the earth at some point, or earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes, all these things that are very destructive that are happening. Um, and so in Keller's perception, um, it's all of that, all of whether it be human hate or natural disaster, eternally uh, um, experienced, if you will. And some of that is, is personally chosen. You know, we, we personally choose 
uh, hate. We personally choose uh, self-indulgence. We personally choose uh, that lifestyle that is not of God. And so Keller is saying, eternal choosing of that is eternal destruction. And while we see, you know, while we can see in the world God's presence, you know, clearly in creation, Romans says that we can see and perceive the presence of the Lord as you go out to the beach and enjoy a sunrise, or as you go up to the mountains, or you walk around uh, and enjoy the springs of Homosassa as we went uh, yesterday. Uh, you can enjoy and ascertain that there is a God and that His glory is displayed for us to see. Whether it in flowers or sunsets or the moon or stars, whatever it is, His glory is evident. And what is being painted here in this text is that we will be separate from that presence that we perceive during this life. We perceive His presence as we go about this life. Well, that perception of His presence or real interaction with His presence is completely removed in this eternal existence apart from God. Um, And finally, he says, separate from the glory of God's might. Um, The fact is, as in the midst of seeing destruction and and difficulty, um, and in the midst of seeing God's manifest glory in the world, uh, we also see his might stepping into the destruction and bringing out glory. You, you mentioned earlier that we, our faith grows when we see miracles, right? When you see a miracle happen where something is supposed to be broken and now it is not broken, that is the glory of God's might. And so Paul is saying, you know, eternal destruction, separation from God's presence and separation from any of the glory of God's might. We, you will not see the glory of God's might anymore in this separated state from God. So what is, what is hell like? What is it like? That question, very not good. Not good. There's no good way to describe it even. Eternal destruction, separation from God's presence, separation from the glory of God's might. Uh, Paul is lining it out pretty plainly for us. It's not something you want to be a part of or experience. Uh, another question that comes up often when you bring out the, the hell card, I guess, uh, is can God really send good people to such a place? Can God really choose to send people he has created to a place of eternal destruction? And so we have to wrestle with why that is. Why is there this place of eternal destruction that is completely separate from God's presence and his glory and might? And, uh, there are a couple of scriptures that point us to this. And uh, the first is this, that, that God is holy and he is just. That nothing of sin can be in his presence. In his glory and his presence, there cannot be any sin. He's the father of lights. And in 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 15 and 16, he says this, um, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. God dwells in an unapproachable light. Even the most holy efforts that we have are unapproachable to God's holiness. So no no sinfulness or brokenness can be in God's presence. 
God is holy and his standard is perfection. And, and Paul says again, as I alluded to earlier in Romans, uh, Romans 1 verses 18 to 20, that, uh, that this is a real thing we have to deal with, but that we are, not, uh, we are without an excuse. He says in uh, chapter 1 of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without an excuse. So the things we see are, are real things that, that God has created, and in the things he has created, his, his natural creation, his human uh, humans that he has created, animals he's created, all of his creation, in his creation, we can perceive his eternal power, his divine nature. We can perceive uh, his invisible attributes through the things he has created. And so we are left without an excuse. His standard is holy and his presence is manifest to us. And so uh, since, since good is not perfect, there's a standard that has to be applied. Only Jesus is uh, only Jesus can make us righteous. Only Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and gave the appropriate sacrifice for us to stand in the presence of God. The glory of God's might is personified in that explicitly. In the fact that God came in his son, took on the cross, that we, whether good people or bad, quote, who place our trust in him, could be reconciled to God the Father. There's nothing we can do on our own, no good deed that can achieve perfection for us because even our good motives are motives of selfishness for our, for our own purposes and comfort. So the question isn't really, uh, can God really send good people to a place of eternal destruction? The question is, how can God accept any people into his glory and perfection. And that is answered in Christ and what he has done for us. Um, so we have to deal with this reality that this eternal place exists of destruction and brokenness. But the glory of God's might is that he has sent his son Jesus. And we can see Jesus working in our lives and in the lives of those around us as we perceive a growing faith, a love that is uh, real for one another, and uh, an enduring of our persecutions and afflictions. Eternity is real. It It will meet us all at a point of death or a point of Christ's return. And Paul is saying here that, uh, his prayer is that, that we would um, uh, be shown to be, in verse 11, uh, his prayer is that God would make us worthy of his calling, that he fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that, again, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to uh, avoid this eternal destruction, 
and want others to avoid this eternal destruction. We have to take seriously uh, what God has called us to accomplish in this life in sharing his gospel. The fact is, uh, we talked about slack earlier, and a lot of times uh, as Christians, we tend to rely upon the mercy of God rather than recognizing the justice of God as we go about our day. It's easy for us to say, well, God's just going to have mercy on everyone and he'll, you know, he'll work it out in the end. And it's easy to do that. But I think what Paul is challenging us with here is to not trust in the slack, not trust in that mercy that is present and real. God gives mercy and he has mercy for incredible circumstances. And that is true. But um, Jesus didn't intend us to depend so much on God's mercy that we disobey the Great Commission. And Jesus gave us a Great Commission for a purpose. He said in Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We have to be careful not to so trust in the mercy of God, that we don't obey the command that God has given us. There's a, a theory of Christianity that can get us stuck in, um, in inaction. And it's more important for us to listen to the words of Paul and the words of Jesus who are saying to us what we actually ought to be doing rather than theorizing about what might be with God's mercy in hand it's there. His mercy is there, okay? I'll give you that. And he, maybe he has some mysterious ways in which he works. Um, but the command to us as Christians is to go and to make disciples, to teach them, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So rather than rely on the mercy of God, we ought to obey the command of the Savior. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that uh, you saw fit to display your glory and might among us. To come down as a great high priest who can sympathize with our position. To take on our sin and our death. To wash clean to wash us clean in your blood. God, we are thankful that that you plainly tell us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For the heart of the one who believes is justified and the mouth of one who confesses is saved. We're thankful to Jesus for coming and taking on the sin we deserve, the the punishment we deserved, and nailing it to the cross. And we're thankful that He has risen again, and we're thankful that He is coming again. God, we pray that um, rather than being um, discouraged by the fact that there is a place called hell, that we'd rather be prompted to urgency in the calling you've given each of us 
as we interact with friends and family, as we interact with coworkers. God, that we would speak your truth, that we would devise ways as you do, that, that men would come to confess Jesus as their Savior, that would love people into the kingdom. Lord, we're so thankful for this time you've given us to come and to worship you. You are King of kings, you are Lord of lords. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.